loving Father, we've gathered this morning to praise you. And Lord, we're excited that you have come and joined us this morning. We pray that your spirit would allow us to unlock our hearts as well as our brains. That you might reside in us to the extent that you desire that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would allow your spirit to lead us in the activities not of just Sundays, but of the weeks that lie before us. We're a needy people. That's why you sent Jesus. You knew that. And we thank you for the fact that you have allowed us the privilege of accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior so that you might adopt us into your family as your children. And Lord, it's therefore appropriate that we crawl up in your lap, you being our daddy, our Abba, and to spend some time with you. Lord, we pray for those within our body that have physical needs. They're great. They're real. And you are the great physician. And you are the one that provides comfort in the midst of trauma. Lord, we pray for those that are going through emotional issues because they're just as real and often even more painful than the physical ones. We pray that you would provide direction, that you provide peace. Lord, we lift up specifically today our missionaries in Burkina Faso, a country being torn apart by civil war. Lord, where there's a handful of believers seeking to live for you and to share the good news. We pray today that you would bless them and for the church in the Ukraine, Lord, and for those in the adjoining countries, such as Romania, that are ministering there to the Ukrainians, we pray that you would bless them, give them wisdom on what to do, and that in both countries, men and women would see Jesus and accept him and come to them. We pray for our families, it's wintertime. We spend a lot of time together. Sometimes that's hard. And Lord, we pray for the fathers and husbands that we would be the spiritual leaders in our home that you intend us to be. That our children would see Jesus in us. And Lord, we just thank you for how you've poured out your blessings upon us as a congregation, we thank you for our pastors and pastoral staff. Oh, Lord, thank you. And for the blessings you're pouring upon our children and our youth in those ministries. And we pray that you would continue to do so. And Lord, we just pray that instead of just listening to the sermon today, we would hide it in our hearts and use it this week. For it's in Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's three years old through the fifth grade. And uh, I'll let you know that um, tonight, uh, I hope you come back for uh, kids and youth ministry and a number of small groups will be meeting tonight. Um, Our Sunday night worship uh, time takes place between uh, 5.30 and 7.30, and uh, all are welcome this evening. A big thing happening today immediately after the service, and some of you have already registered or signed up for it, but we will have a new members lunch um, immediately after service in the room behind me. And so you can access that room through even the door over here or the, the door over there. And uh, it'll be about an hour, maybe an hour and a half when we factor in uh, lunch. And uh, we'll provide the lunch. We have plenty of food. If you didn't register ahead of time and you want to come, please still join us. It's not, um, you are not required to become a member at the end of the lunch. It's an, it's an informational meeting. And so whether you've been here for six months or a year and you're thinking about maybe becoming a member and you're thinking now's really the time for me, we'd love for you to be there. Or if this is your first Sunday with us this morning and you just think, I want more information about this place, about what happens behind the scenes, um, and I want to ask some questions, just come and join us for lunch. And so um, whether you want to just learn information for the first time or you're ready to commit to membership, it's a great, great opportunity to get to hear a little bit more from uh, behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, join us for that. Kids, if you have family, if you have kids that are upstairs, pick your kids up, then join us back there. We will have um, somebody to watch the kids so they don't sit through all of my, um, my presentation because I know you still have to sit through. If you're an adult and you come to lunch, you have to sit through my presentation back there. So be prepared. Schedule accordingly. If you're sick of me talking at the end of the service today, don't come to lunch. Do something else. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, come to lunch. But um, then in a couple weeks, we have our congregational meeting. That is on the 19th, two weeks from today. That's an evening event. We'll have a chili cook-off. That is a competition. It's a highly competitive competition. So uh, practice your recipes. If you want to practice and send me your, your attempts to taste test first, please do. Um, you know where to find me, but otherwise uh, the competition is the 19th, and we'll have presentations from ministry leaders um, that evening, and so we'll have dinner first, and then we'll have our congregational uh, meeting that evening, and then the following weekend, the 25th and 26th, is our missions conference, and I hope you received one of these um, Flyers on your way in this morning that tells you about the schedule. We have a Saturday morning component uh, for both adults and kids. So Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, the adults are going to come back here. There's going to be some breakfast. There's going to be a short, some short worship. And then there's going to be um, uh, some sessions back here where you're going to hear from different missionary, missionaries and mission partners. And then um, while that's happening, the kids are going to be over here in their normal area, and they're going to have a missions um, moment or a missions presentation where Rika and our kids' ministry leaders are going to lead them through what it's like to live overseas on mission for Christ and the importance of missionaries to the global call that Christ has given to us as his people. So it will be something that, um, that is for all ages that Saturday morning. And then uh, Sunday, we'll have a guest speaker from Crew, which is uh, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. It's the organization that produced the Jesus film with whom we've partnered for a number of years. And we're going to hear about how the tool of the Jesus film is being used all around the world to reach people for Christ. 
uh, one of the most uh, significant evangelistic tools all around the world today, 40-some years after it was um, produced. Um, God is still using it and blessing that ministry. And then that evening, we'll have a movie night. The kids will have um, an event that they're doing all together in kind of their upstairs kids' rooms. But the youth and adults will have a movie, hot dogs, popcorns, uh, popcorn together. And it's not the Jesus film. It's one of their other um, feature films that they've produced that will show you just the the effectiveness of this um, evangelism strategy and also give you some things to just think about and ponder for your Christian life. So a lot going on in this season. Uh, there's some other things in, the, uh, in this bulletin sheet that I'd love for you to be aware of, but just remember especially to save the dates for that congregational meeting on the 19th and the missions conference the weekend after that. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. And we're going to continue to just go sequentially through 1 Timothy unpack this together, uh, and really this section of the book is all about relationships and showing us how important relationships are in God's plan for his people. And so we've talked about so far the, the truth of the church of Jesus being a household or a family. And so God wants you to engage in a local church, connect in a local church, and establish a new family within the church. God also wants us to, within the church and within the Christian community as a whole, not just the local church, but encompassing other local churches as well, care for, respect, honor those of, uh, of a variety of different generations. That was our, our task for last week, was see how God wants us to relate across all generations. Today, the task is specifically relating to those that are in leadership positions, to those that are authority. Now, we as Americans have a pretty unique relationship with authority in comparison to other cultures and other nations. Um, Americans are sort of, our, our country is sort of built with an inherent kind of distrust for certain types of authority. From the beginning of our nation, we've never had royalty. We've always wanted to be, be led by a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That is our foundation that's a beautiful thing. We should be uh, grateful for that heritage and that standing of um, American citizens and the way we particularly relate to authority. But even as Americans, we elect authorities, we vote for authorities, we serve under authorities of governing leaders. And just as within our nation, within the church, authority matters. What you're going to see from today's passage is a lot of references to church authority to those that are serving as elders and overseers, leaders within the church. But it goes far, far beyond that in our applications and our principles we find today. My closest brush with royalty actually happened uh, now almost nine years ago, which is crazy to think of. But um, Larry in his prayer mentioned our mission partners in West Africa. We still continue to support um, uh, disciple makers, ministers, people that work for the ministry of the gospel in West Africa. And about nine years ago, I was there with a group of young people and uh, serving alongside our, a couple of American missionaries that at that point lived there, John and Liz Joyce, who are now um, living back home. And in that trip, it was one of the fullest trips of my life because we got to really and truly live the mission of Christ by taking the gospel to people that had never heard of Jesus, never heard a story from the Bible 
had no framework, no background or anything. And we knew this to be true from, from their reactions to us. We knew that when we walked into these villages with no running water, no electricity, that were um, in, inside of a people group that didn't relate well with other people groups, we knew that in each village we went to, they were completely blank slates. We got to present the stories of Jesus and present the gospel. Muslim peoples that were sitting there listening to stories about Jesus, enthralled, wanting to hear more. We were, let me just be honest about our mission strategy, we were the circus come to town in those villages. All these kids, I mean, we're talking about high school juniors and seniors and college freshmen walking in, and we were like a circus. We, we were telling Bible stories with flannel graphs. Y'all remember those things, right? It still works in Burkina Faso. You, you put the, the colors up there, and they, they, you have people that you stick on these little felt things. It was pretty cool. We brought soccer balls. We brought American candy. They thought we were the coolest thing. And I remember the day that we were um, in one of these villages, and we were teaching our, um, our Bible lessons, and we had to play soccer with the kids, do all these fun things. And the, the king, the chief, the leader of this village um, uh, approached us, our translator, and uh, actually our host, the guy that had invited us. And we thought, oh man, we're in trouble. We're going to get kicked out. We, the, we brought the circus to town, and he does not like it, and he's going to send us out of this place. And so we're, we're already thinking in our heads, like, we probably need to just pack up. I call the kids up to us. I think there's something dramatic is about to happen. He's very serious in his conversation. I have no idea what he's saying. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, we're like, all right, guys, we're packing up and moving. And we're like, oh, okay. Well, I, this was fun, but I guess we're moving on. We had other villages, so it's not all is not lost. But then our host says, actually, what's happening is the chief has invited us to his home, and we are now going to be sharing our stories in the courtyard of this chief of this, of this village. And we're like, oh, wow. And he's like, seriously, this is a really big deal. This is unheard of, that we're being invited in. And it's, I mean, we're talking about a primitive type village with little huts, but there's, the king has about three or four huts. He has multiple wives, lots of children. But there's kind of a courtyard in the middle of it, and that's where we're now going to be telling our Bible stories, where we're now going to be sharing candy and all of those things. So we come in there, and we are all of a sudden honored guests of this amazing, notable leader that all of a sudden wants to treat us as these, these important guests from a foreign land. And so the, the, the peak moment of the whole thing this chief comes up to, to John and myself and, and the host afterwards, and he's like, and the host is, and John and the host are like prepping me, like, you got to show proper respect. You got to show this guy, he is the leader of this people. We've got to be kind. We've got to be respectful. So we go through like the traditions of West Africa, like how you show respect to those in leaders. Things that, again, Americans, we're, we're kind of dumb about that kind of stuff. And here's the end of the story. We, we walk up there, and I'm showing these, you know, pleasantries and everything, and the guy says, I have a gift for you. And out, out comes this guy holding this live chicken by the legs. Comes up to me, because I'm the, the leader. I mean, this is nine years ago. I was just a kid, guys. Still am. Um, young at heart. So this, 
holding this chicken upside down by the legs and says, you're our honored, esteemed guest from a foreign land here. Receive this chicken. And I was like, I've never gotten a chicken before. Here I come telling, I tell Bible stories to kids all the time. Nobody here ever gave me a chicken. But here I am holding this chicken. I'm like, what am I going to do with it? I'm not taking this on the, on the plane. What are we doing here with this chicken? We end up taking that chicken back to, the, uh, back to John and Liz's house on the roof of their truck. We, I mean, like in a box, like in a little cage for it. But we tie that thing to the roof and we take it home and John gives it away to somebody else because I'm not taking the chicken back to the U.S. That doesn't make it through customs very easily. But there was something I learned about the, the way different cultures in, in different, different societies relate to authority differently. This dude was the king as much as there is a king in that type of society. And we had to submit to him or we would not have the opportunity to say anything that we had come to say. But through following those proper channels and showing honor to whom honor is due and respecting the local customs, all of a sudden we got free chicken out of the deal. Actually, two days later, we were at another village and we see the king, or the chief of that village talking to some guy, and then the guy runs off, and he grabs a goat out of a field. And we see him, he kind of goes behind this, this, uh, this little hut, but like still in plain view. And he starts like butchering the goat out, out in the open. And John's like, you might get a goat out of this too. And I was like so excited. John, John was like appalled, like they do not need to give their best livestock to us. But I just wanted to be able to say, I got a chicken and a goat. But the goat wasn't actually for us, it was for somebody else. But there's something that you learn in different societies about how you relate to authority. So here we are, stepping into a first century context in 1 Timothy 5. 21st century Americans trying to figure out what first century Roman Empire looks like and how they relate to authority. So we recognize there's a little bit of a gap there, a a, a cultural gap in how we hear and understand these words. But I want you to hear, as we're reading these words out loud, that this is sacred scripture. These are timeless principles that apply differently in different societies and cultures. But the principles, the gospel truth behind them is the same and still applicable and reasonable for us. This passage will tell us that you must show honor, respect, discernment, purity. There's all these principles for relating to leaders of people. But what I want you to know, is that all these principles can be applied not just to leaders like a Fulani chief or leaders like a pastor or leaders like a government leader. All of these principles relate to how we interact with anybody, any person with whom we connect our lives, with whom we align our social lives, our church lives, whatever we do in relationship with people. There are principles here for each of us. So let's start. First uh, Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. Now, continuing on, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, that are not cannot remain hidden. Okay, so you hear those verses, and you see a lot of talk about relating to elders, showing honor to elders, how you accept charges against elders, those sort of things. But as we unpack it, I'm going to give you five principles that, re, that show us how we relate to people in positions of authority, our leaders, but also show us something about how we relate to anybody. Number one, honor. We show honor to whom honor is due. We relate in fairness. We relate with impartiality. We relate, number four, with purity. And finally, with discernment. Those five principles are going to frame the way we walk through this passage together to show us how we pursue relationships with anybody and everybody. First, honor. It comes from verses 17 and 18, where he tells us, Paul tells Timothy, the young pastor, to, that, that the elders, the leaders, the pastors, who lead the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, the Greek word there for honor without too far going, diving deep into the Greek, there's actually a double meaning to the word honor. That the word honor that gets used there can be used as a, as a public honoring show of respect, but it's also a word that gets used for payment, for remuneration. In the same way, uh, actually the word that we use to pay somebody for like a one-time speech, speaking engagement comes through Greek and Latin from that that same core. The word honorarium is a way of showing honor through payment. So when Paul says double honor, what he means is public respect. He's also speaking about payment. And, and he's sort of talking about the fact that people who serve the church, people who work, should be rewarded or, or they should be paid for what they do. And he quotes Jesus here. The laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote from Jesus in Luke 10. The, the muzzle and ox quote is from Deuteronomy. So he uses Old Testament law. He uses the life of Christ to say something important to the, the congregation and the leaders of the congregation. Pay people for what they do. It's just a simple, simple statement. You show honor to those that are worthy of honor, and you pay those that are worthy of being paid. And so we know from this passage and others, that there's a system in the early church where there are a number of different church leaders. And some work outside the church and some work in the church. But that tradition of paying those that work in the church developed pretty early on. And that's what is being referenced here. There's two types of elders. There's those elders that serve the church and work outside the church and those elders that labor in the preaching and teaching of the word who devote more time into preaching and teaching within the church. So the first principle he says here is pay the people that spend their time shepherding you and, and speaking. Okay, that's, that's a really simple application that's sort of narrow, okay? And I want to I expand that a little bit to understand the principle of what Paul is telling us here. Uh, we are to show honor to those who are worthy of honor. That's Romans 13. Romans 13, 7, Paul is telling us how to relate to people in government. So, 
1 Timothy 5 is, here's how you relate to your church leaders. Romans 13, here's how you relate to government leaders. And in both passages, honor is an important part of it. Proverbs tells us to show honor to people. So Christians, brothers and sisters, what we have to recognize is that the way we treat people matters. That's pretty simple, right? We, we can get there. We know that the way we interact with people matters. But what God is telling us here is specific application to leaders, but I'm going to broaden it out to say this matters how we apply it to everyone, is when people are worthy of being honored for their actions, for their commitment, for their character maturity, for, for the example they set for others, they are worth receiving the honor for what they do. And sometimes we do this. Certain positions of leadership, we get this. Somebody does really well within the workplace, we show them honor. You give them some sort of award or recognition in the workplace. You give, you give your pastors, you know, we, one of the best things about being a pastor of this church is the way this church honors all of us well. You do that well. This is not a sermon about that because you already know how to do that. I'm talking about other people, though. Because what we don't do, and it's just easy to forget about, is honor those people that are not in positions of leadership. Honor those people that serve behind the scenes. Honor those people that do the little things that you only notice when it's not done. You don't notice that the carpet in the church gets vacuumed multiple times every single week, but you would notice if it wasn't done. You don't notice what the, the kids' leaders do. You, as, as parents, us as a congregation, we don't notice what the kids' leaders are doing right now unless they don't show up one day and we have all of our kids sitting in here and we're like, why are all the kids, why, why didn't they go to their classes upstairs? Well, because those important people that matter in the life and ministry of the church just didn't show up. We should honor them for the work that they do, the ministry that they do regularly. We should honor the ladies that, that make us coffee every morning back here. We should honor the guys that keep that screen lit up, that keep me to where I can hear you, or where you can hear me. Keep the lights on in this building, our tech team, our video teams. The deacons that unlock the doors every, every morning. The deacons that are watching to make sure that we're safe and our campus is safe right now. There are so many positions within the life of a local church worthy of honor, worthy of esteem, it's so easy to forget about. Now, if you, you can take that a step farther. What about in your family? How can you parents show honor to your kids for the work that they do well, for what you see in them? How can you shape and guide their maturity by not just telling them, not just pointing out when they fall short of expectations, but for honoring when they fulfill expectations and exceed expectations? You're, if you manage anyone within your workplace, same principle applies. It's really easy within a workplace to point out what your people are doing wrong. But you point somebody in the correct trajectory by not just pointing out what they're doing wrong, but by honoring those positive contributions they make to the workplace. Teachers, the same thing. Honor those students who are excelling. Honor what you see in people that is worthy of being honored. It is a Christian concept. Romans also says this. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It is the only passage in the New Testament that I know of, and I've said this many times and nobody's ever given me another one. The only passage in the New Testament I've known of that in which Christians are told to compete with each other. 
I like competition. I like competing with people. And the only place that God tells us this is what you should compete about is outdo one another in showing honor. That should be our competition. In a marriage rivalry where you want your way and she wants her way and you tend to, to butt heads over who gets their way, outdo one another in showing honor. When there's a peer in your workplace that's kind of your rival, you're at a similar level and you both want to get up to that next level and you're kind of rivals in that battle, outdo one another in showing honor. Within your family, within um, whatever relationships in your life, the scriptures tell us, Christians, we are called to show honor to whom honor is due. And we're called to outdo one another in the way we speak, in the way we show honor to others. Number two, in fairness, verse 19 tells us that we shouldn't admit a charge against a leader except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that's actually an Old Testament concept. The Old Testament law established that to say you need two witnesses for admitting a charge against anybody. But here it applies specifically to leaders that you, he knows, Paul knows, that leaders are going to be criticized to a greater degree. In fact, the background of this whole book that we've talked about for a couple months is that Paul is dealing with a problem in leadership. So please hear me. Paul is not saying, protect your leaders here. Paul has spent a lot of the book so far saying, criticize your leaders. Figure out where your leaders are falling short. Because the leaders in the church of Ephesus were falling short. Many of them were teaching false doctrine and had to be weeded out and removed from their positions. But he's saying, don't just go willy-nilly in that whole pursuit. Be careful. Be fair. Be just in the way you discern accusations against somebody. I've said it before, in society, we probably are less trusting of leadership in society than ever before. Almost weekly, I have a conversation with somebody in which some version of, I just don't know who to trust in the media, in government leadership, in society as a whole. We don't know who we can trust anymore. So we are just naturally skeptical. What Paul is saying here is two things in verses 19 and 20. In 19, don't admit a charge against a leader without two witnesses or more. In verse 20, though, if there are those that persist in sin, rebuke them. So there's two pieces to this equation here. Number one, be careful to guard against false accusations. But number two... Rebuke those who truly have sinned, who truly do not represent the gospel well in their leadership. So Paul is, is being pretty balanced, and I think he's being pretty clear and forthright here. Leaders are going to fail, but leaders are also going to get falsely accused. So therefore, we need some structure in place. Anyone that's ever stood in a leadership position, whether it's in a church, in the workplace, in local government, in a school, whatever leadership position you have or have been in, you've been criticized. And you've probably known what it's like to be falsely criticized. And you've probably had to deal with some level of false accusation to explain what really happened in a scenario. And Paul is saying that's going to happen. It's a promise. All leaders will face that. But he also says some leaders will actually fail and therefore be worthy to be rebuked. The motivation in this, in this rebuke is fear. And let me take a second to just talk about what he means and what he does not mean. One of the worst motivations for right behavior for the proper Christian life is shame. Now, 
we know that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our guilt. We as sinners, we stand guilty before God. So there is, there is a sense in which our wrongdoings, our mistakes, should convict us, should allow us to feel a level of guilt. But there's a difference in 2 Corinthians between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief, exterior motivation and shame, does not lead us to repentance and towards growth in the gospel. Godly grief, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when we truly have sinned, that leads us in the right direction. And that's what Paul is emphasizing in, in the church in Ephesus here. He does not want to shame leaders so that everybody else is just afraid of stepping out of line. He wants leaders, everybody, in any position to recognize that we stand in front of God at all times in our lives. One day, one day the scriptures tell us we are going to stand literally in front of the throne of God and give an account for what we have done in this life. But right now, it's not as if God is going to find out everything in that moment. We are in front of the presence of God right now. He sees us right now. He sees our actions outwardly, and he sees our inward motivations and the sins of the heart and the mind. Just as clearly he sees those now as he will at the end of days. And what Paul is saying needs to happen within the leaders is that sometimes the church has to make it explicit. This person has sinned. This person has gone out of line so that the people that see that will say, that person has fallen short of God's good design. That person has dishonored God. And it's not fear of shame. It's not fear of rebuke from the people that motivates people to change. It's fear of God. It's fear of letting down a father that loves you. It's fear of not representing the gospel that has changed and transformed you. It's fear of the punishment of hell because you've been faking it through your life and you've been acting like a good court Christian and you really have not actually received and responded to the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the fear he's talking about. Recognizes that, recognizing that God truly is a holy God that truly does punish wicked sinners, and therefore we should be quick to repent and embrace transformation. So we react to leaders and all people with honor. We act with fairness. Verse 21, impartiality, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing for partiality. When people make mistakes, we handle it differently based on what we think of that person before that mistake. That's just human nature. We're prone to show partiality to people that we like when they make a mistake. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a point of that that's good. Because sometimes we recognize somebody has a good track record of good character and they made a mistake, so therefore we reference the fact that they have a good, strong track record of good character and we recognize that that mistake, they have stepped out of the character that they have proven in the past. We handle that differently than somebody who's just been deceiving people for their whole lives. But we are also prone to this thing of, well, I really like that person, so I just can't imagine them actually being a sinner. I can't imagine them actually falling short in that way. And that sort of undershoots the, the significance of the sin nature that we all deal with constantly. And we just have to be honest that we're prone 
to like certain people more than others, and therefore we hear an accusation against somebody that we like, we're going to take that differently than we hear an accusation against somebody that we don't like. And Paul's telling us, don't establish sides, don't establish parties within the church, show impartiality when you receive some news of somebody stepping out of line, messing up, teaching false doctrine, or sinning in some public way. Let me give you an example of where any of us would be prone to show some partiality. Let's say there's some random football program that has some level of accusations against it. Say, so, well, they, they have been recruiting illegally, they've been doing things under the table, they have not been following rules in a proper way. You look at a college football team, and I can tell you right now, your view of that situation is going to depend on your view of that program before that news hits. There are certain programs, based on what you're, who you're a fan of, that you're going to be like, I knew it. Those guys, they were slimy. I knew they were slimy. I'm so glad they're finally getting caught. And then there's other programs that you'd be like, no, that's just somebody that's trying to, trying to bring up false news. That, that's, not, that's not true, fake news. That's not what really happened because that's your team. You like that coach. You like that program. You cheered for them, and you don't think they did anything wrong. But those guys over there that beat you, they're slimy. We all have that tendency in us that we hear certain things about certain people, and some people it's easy to believe because we already don't like them. And other people, it's easy to not believe because we really like them and they were kind to us. And what Paul is saying here is the truth is the truth is the truth. And we need to recognize and discern that the people that we love and think highly of can mess up. And it is wrong. It is wrong to the person that you love that mess up to not address their wrongdoing. That harms the sinner that, let's say, you have somebody you love that is a leader that is somebody that you respect, that you've heard the word from, that, you've, that has taught you well. Let's say there's a workplace leader that has been a good boss and loved the people under his care and shown a good example of strong character, and he messes up. And if you don't address it, it's a disservice to that guy. It's a disservice to the pastor that steps out of line, that lets the congregation down, that sins against God if it doesn't get addressed. If you love that person and you think highly of that person, you should be more motivated to help in their character development by addressing the sin and shortcomings you see within that person. We judge impartially, trying to discern the truth of God in any given situation. And fourthly, purity from verse 22. Look at, look at what he says here. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now I want to be clear what he means by the laying on of hands because sometimes the language of Scripture, some of us get it and some of us don't immediately get it. What he's talking about in laying on of hands is he's talking about selecting a leader within the church. To select a leader within the church, what they did for the earliest pastors and elders, they laid hands on them. And that means laying on of hands in prayer, blessing, commissioning them to service within the church. It's an ordination where a person is seen as high character and able to teach, and you lay hands on them as a way of commissioning them to serve the church. And what he's saying here is do not lay hands on, do not commission leaders too quickly, because you could miss the sin, shortcoming, immaturity that they're showing in their life if you lay hands on that person too quickly. 
Leaders should be carefully identified and developed and not just placed into a position of leadership without recognizing and discerning uh, where they are with Christ and in their character development. He says, keep the church pure by not making judgments too quickly. Keep yourselves pure by not aligning yourselves with people too quickly. Um, I think about this in a parenting uh, standpoint. One of the lessons I learned from being a youth pastor, I think I probably learned it when I was in high school, but it was abundantly clear when I became a youth pastor. Sometimes people, and adults have this too, but sometimes young people are not who they appear to be at all times. And one of the things that I, I could see years ago serving as a youth pastor is I could see when there were kids that were good kids and they were kind of struggling and trying, kind of acting out a few times versus the people that all the parents thought were so awesome. But I knew that behind the scenes, in the core, in the heart, there was something going on there. And that person, they learned how to play the game. They learned how to look good on the outside. They learned how to how to be really respectful to, to, to moms and dads, shake the dad's hand, yes, yes ma'am, no ma'am, to the moms. And all the parents got really impressed. And then you kind of, because you're with high school students in situations where parents aren't around, you kind of see behind the scenes. You get in a small group with certain kids and you start to think, this is not, this is not who this person portrays publicly. I think of my own kids from a parenting standpoint, and I think there are lots of, there's a, there's a challenge every single day when I send my kids to school. Who are they going to connect with? Who are they going to interact with? Who are their influences going to be? And what is that going to do to shape them into their next few years, but also the rest of their lives into adulthood? And so just as we should be discerning about not laying hands on people too quickly to ordain them into leadership positions, so we should be just discerning and pursue purity in how we align our lives with other people. Be discerning when you select a job and what is the character of the workplace that you are going into. Be discerning when you establish social relationships with other people. And recognize, is this a person that is really going to help me pursue purity in my life with Christ? Or is this relationship going to drag me down, going to pull me backwards? And teach your kids to do the same. To practice purity in their interactions with others. And to surround themselves with people that are, are pointing them toward Christ. That are pointing them towards uh, obedience of parents, listening in class, doing the right thing, and not living those fake lives. We all have to pursue purity in our relationships each and every day. Verse 23 is uh, the weirdest in this passage. I'll go ahead and say it that way. All of a sudden, Paul starts talking about Timothy's stomach problems, which, by the way, 2,000 years later, has got to be weird for Timothy to know. Did you know that every generation of Christians for the, for, till the end of time is going to know about this young guy's stomach problems? There's a very public Public thing here for Paul, this older mentor, to just be like, hey, dude, I know you got this irritable bowel stuff going on, and so um, drink some wine, and that, that may help. Um, what, I think there's a couple things that Paul may be doing here. Um, Paul is talking in purity about the way Timothy surrounds himself with certain people. And so one explanation of this is don't just worry about your inner purity, Timothy. 
but also worry about your personal health. It seems as if Timothy was probably prone to be that guy that serves the church so well, that serves other people so well, that he neglects his own health. And so there's one possibility that Paul's just taking a time out here to say, yes, pursue purity, pursue the church. Timothy, by the way, think about your own personal health along the way. I know you're having these challenges. Here's one little tidbit of advice for your own personal health. I think there, there's another possible explanation that Paul is trying to say to Timothy, purity is good, but also it's like he's, he's telling Timothy, he talks about wine earlier in the book. And when he talks about alcohol earlier in 1 Timothy 3 as a qualification for leaders, he is saying leaders do not get drunk on wine and therefore unable to think and be led by the Spirit. He doesn't say that alcohol is a sin. He's actually telling him to drink alcohol right here. But he says that being inebriated to the extent that you are influenced by alcohol and unable to think clearly and operate as a Christian, that is the problem. And so I think what Paul is most likely doing, there's a possibility he's talking about personal health and saying, Timothy, don't neglect your personal health as you serve the church hard. I think what Paul's probably most likely doing here is saying, pursue purity, but don't pursue asceticism where you just live such a strict life that you end up doing yourself harm. Don't just do things for the sake of, uh, don't, do not be, because one of the false doctrines that Paul's already addressed here is the false doctrine that says Christians can't eat this, can't drink this, can't do this. And Paul has already said those things are lawful for those who are saved by Christ. And I think this is just a reiteration of that point. Paul is saying pursue purity, but don't take purity so far that you're eliminating things from your life that God would not have you eliminate from your life. Pursue Christ. Receive the gospel. Don't try to earn favor with Christ by, by, by neglecting certain things or by shutting off certain things and uh, fasting from certain foods, fasting from alcohol, those sort of things. That's not necessary, is what Timothy is communicating here. You can live in purity and occasionally have a glass of wine. That's what, that's what Paul's telling him. Number five, discernment. And this is the one that sort of wraps the whole thing up. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. Even those that are not cannot remain. Here's the challenge for how we relate to everybody. Those in leadership, those that we lead, that, that serve under us in some way, those that we have any sort of relationship within our family, workplace, society as a whole. We have to recognize that the outward sins are really easy to sin, or re really easy to see, and they're actually the least dangerous. The outward sins that you can quickly see and discern, and you can see, yeah, that guy, he's, he's a drunkard. Yeah, that guy has hardcore anger problems. I see the way that guy treats his wife, and that's a problem. That guy, he, he's stealing from his business. Those outward sins, yeah, they're problems. They're not nearly as dangerous because those are evident. You can see them, you can address them, you can deal with them. Don't let those go just because I'm saying they're less significant. I'm saying the most dangerous sins that Paul is getting Timothy to think about here are those that are inconspicuous. Some people sin in ways that are conspicuous, outward. And some people are decaying on the inside and you have no idea. 
And that's why Paul is saying, practice discernment, pursue purity, be impartial, be, be committed to figuring out the truth of what is really going on within this person. Don't be impressed by them so quickly that you tend to think that everything they do is right and pure and they have no problem with sin in their lives. But actually, walk carefully into relationships so that you can discern that even though there's not a physical sexual sin that is a mark on that person's character, even though they're not actively stealing, even though they're not actively abusing anyone in their anger, that person may still have all three of those sins at a smaller level within the heart and mind. If you live close enough to people, pursue purity enough with people, you start to see that the person that's not committing outward sexual sin is decaying on the inside drunk with lust and sins of the mind. And you start seeing that person that's not actively stealing from their employer or anybody else is so, is so wrecked by greed that they cannot operate as a healthy employee or as a leader of their family because every decision they are making is coming, is being filtered through the God of money who they're truly serving in all of their actions. Paul is saying one day, all of those things are going to be made clear. Before the throne of Christ, all will be made clear. And sexual sinners, those entrapped by greed, those entrapped by anger, it's going to be clear and evident before the throne room of God. But Christians, we have to be careful not to just give somebody a pass because the sin is not outward and it's inward. We should be close enough to each other. We should care enough about each other to help discern those inward sins, those inward patterns, and so that we can help people prepare for that day. Because he says, even those that are not conspicuous, even those sins that are not conspicuous, will one day be seen. Sins cannot remain hidden forever. He ends this passage on how to relate to other people with a strong warning. One day, all of your sins are going to be found out. So what are you doing to prepare for that day? I'm going to ask you, as we think through this passage, to apply these principles to relationships around you. Think about these five principles and how you form relationships around you, how you relate to other people, and ask yourselves these questions. I'm actually going to ask if there's uh, young people in this room, and that's a few elementary school kids we have in here, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, any of you. I'm talking to you specifically right now. You guys get a two-point assignment for today. Young people, what I want you to do is I want you to discern your own relationships. Think about, am I pursuing these things in my relationships? Am I showing honor to those around me worthy of honor? Am I treating people fairly? Am I showing partiality to others? Am I pursuing purity in my relationships? By that I mean surrounding myself with other people that are pursuing purity. And am I discerning not just the outward evident sins, but also the inward sins? So young people, that's point one. Ask that of your own relationships. And now, point two. Ask that of the adult relationships around you too. This would be a great opportunity for parent and child together to look not just at your own relationships, but the other's relationships. So kids, I'm I'm talking to you first so that you can go home and you can ask your parents how they're practicing these things. 
Are you showing honor to those around you that are worthy of honor? Parents, are you showing fairness in your relationships, impartiality? Parents, are you pursuing purity and therefore showing, demonstrating to your kids how to do that? Are you showing discernment? So kids, you guys have the opportunity not just to discern yourself, but to ask your parents the hard questions too. I just gave you that permission. And parents, you know that. You know that you need to not just look at your own relationships, but look at, at your kids too and see how, how the relationships, the people you surround you with shape you. As I said, I've got, I've got three elementary school kids. We also have a high school senior this year. We have, and, and I, I just kind of say that flippantly, assuming people know what I mean. We, we have an 18-year-old Romanian student that lives with us, okay? So we have a high school senior, we have fifth grade, we have third grade, we, or we have fifth grade, second grade, first grade, okay? There's a lot, lot of growth going on in our house. We don't know what we're doing with relationships half the time, too. Okay, so there's a lot of these questions of how are we honoring those people in our lives? How are we pointing an 18-year-old senior and, and three elementary school kids, one transitioning into middle school in the next year, how are we pushing those kids to surround themselves with the right people, pursue the right thing in relationships? Parenting is a good lesson for any of us. It's a good challenge for any of us in this. But you don't have to be a parent to pursue these things and recognize you have to be careful and discerning about the relationships around you and how you relate to people. So ask those five questions on those five principles. But lastly, I'll leave you with this thing. It's one point. In all of this, leave room for mission. Leave room for the gospel. Because what I, I don't want you to hear is that if you have negative relationships in your life, if you have people in your life that are not following Christ, that you just X them out because Pastor Tim told you to. Pastor Tim told me to be pure so this person in my life that's not following Christ, I'm just going to X them out. I'm going, to, I'm going to distance myself from that relationship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be wise about those relationships to know how they influence you. But those of us that got really comfortable with what I was saying and say, oh yeah, I only surround myself with really positive people, you have, you have a challenge too because you've got to now step out on mission. If all your relationships are with other Christians that think just like you, that pursue the same priorities as you do, and you're looking around and thinking my life is super pure because I only surround myself with church people, you've got a problem. You're not living on mission. You're not surrounding yourself with people that need Jesus. And that's what we're called to. We're called to pursue Christ in maturity, and we're pursued to pursue Christ's mission in his kingdom. And you know, we do these things at the church where we talk about how we pursue growth together, but sometimes we don't stop and think about everybody out there that has not yet received Jesus, or the people in here, they're still struggling to figure out who Jesus is. And if you're hearing today's sermon as if it's this burden that I'm putting on you to be pure in every way, to be perfect, to be this nice, safe Christian and only hang out with nice, safe Christian people, let me tell you, that's not what I'm trying to communicate at all. I'm trying to communicate that at one time we're pursuing Christ in maturity and at another time we recognize we are broken sinners that have offended a holy God. And the story of our lives is that the almighty eternal God created us for relationship with him to show him honor. That's where we first learn about honor is honoring God above all else. But this God who created us in his image to worship him, we rejected him. 
We turned against him. We have rebelled. We have sinned. We have denied him in our thoughts. We have denied him in our actions. We have pursued other things instead of God and his kingdom. And we have built up for ourselves condemnation where we deserve punishment from him. But the beauty is that Jesus, the son of God, came so that anyone who receives the gift of salvation could have life, could receive forgiveness, could receive righteousness, and be made pure through him. You cannot, you must not try to pursue purity without first receiving the purity of Jesus. You hear that in the right order. You cannot be pure unless Jesus makes you pure. But once Jesus makes you pure, you can live in purity and in obedience to what he has commanded. So if you're struggling with this and thinking, I can't live, I can't live this trajectory that Tim is describing, that Paul is describing. Recognize that it all starts with the gospel. As the team comes up to lead us in one more song, we reflect on these things. That while Christ has shown us and demonstrated to us how we are to live in relationship with other people, Christ has also first and foremost demonstrated to us how we are to live in relationship to him. And it's weakness it's repentance, it's confessing our sins and recognizing that our strength is not enough for the challenges that we face, but God has gifted us a new life in him. And maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, I don't understand why we do certain things that we do. Earlier this morning we were singing, I want to stay here in this moment. And you're like, what moment are we talking about? What are we even doing as we sing and we worship? Well, let me tell you what that's all about. We want to stay, we want to wait, we want to reflect on the truth that though we rebelled against the holy and righteous God, he has come down as Jesus the Son to redeem us, to make us new, to remake us into what we were truly made for. And that's the moment that we're searching for, to recognize the truth of the gospel there, that Christ in his love for us has made us new. And that's why we can stand and we can sing and we can marvel at all that he has done, specifically what he has done on the cross, the grave, and for each of us. So you've got some questions to think about, and I hope you really do reflect on those. But in this moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is if you do not have a relationship with Christ, and the words of, of the sermon today became a burden to you, and you feel that that conviction of sin and you need to do business with Jesus today, then come forward. Meet me at the altar and let's do business with Jesus today and receive the new life from him. But otherwise, let's stand and sing. Let's proclaim what he's done. Let's glory in the beautiful Father that has saved us.
My sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. Oh, I praise God for what He's done. Sing for the freedom. for us as we pursue the brokenness of our own hearts and our own minds until you step in and the work that you have done in eternity past to call us to yourself in Christ coming living a perfect life dying the spirit raising Christ to newness of life the spirit falling on all who believe Father we live now in response to what you have done and we praise you for all that you have done. And it is only on the basis of this that we get to stand this morning and we get to go out and represent you in our community and we get to live on mission for your kingdom and for your glory. So Father, send us out as your ambassadors and as your children. 
heirs to your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you